everyone. So good to see you all here. Uh, again, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and it's a joy to be celebrating this very special Sunday with you all, and thank you for all the families and friends who have come to celebrate uh, the baptisms that we get to enjoy here in just a few minutes. Uh, but we are kicking off this new series during the Easter season. I don't know if you know this, but Easter isn't just a holiday. It's not just a day, but it's actually a season in the church calendar. So we have several weeks all the way leading up to Pentecost that we just are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And if you joined us two weeks ago for Easter, we talked about how Jesus is Lord, that by his resurrection he defeated death, and if Jesus is in fact bodily resurrected, if Jesus is in fact alive eternally right now, he does in fact have authority over all things that he is on the throne and he is alive and he will live beyond any other ruler and authority of this world and he has ultimate authority even in this world right now because he is alive. And we're gonna spend the next seven weeks, including today, and not including Ascension Sunday and Pentecost that are coming up in a few weeks, not including those feasts, we're gonna spend seven weeks exploring how Jesus is Lord. Now, when we use that word Lord, you probably, it probably sounds familiar. We use it in church all the time. It was in like every song we sang already this Sunday or this, this morning. It'll probably be in the songs later. It's a very common word for us to sing and to hear in church, but it's not so common for us to hear that out in, the, out in our community, right? Like we don't talk about our president or our governor or our mayor or our representatives being lords, right? Now, if we lived in England, we might have some lords, right? The dukes might be called lord and they may have some titles, but really lord isn't a word we hear that much. And there's a couple of ways that it's used in scripture. First of all, it can be used as like a polite sir. So as we just heard in our scripture, Saul, whose name is also Paul, said, who are you, lord, when Jesus met him on the road? He says, who are you, sir? That's one way of saying it. But another way of talking about a Lord in the Bible is somebody who has ultimate authority over a particular nation or people group. That's another uh, term that we use as Lord for a ruler. And the difference between us now who live in the United States with our president and our governor and our mayor, they really don't have that much power over our day-to-day -day lives, right? Like they have some things that we have to follow, but really their authority is pretty slim. It's just in a couple of areas that they have authority over us, but a Lord from the biblical sense is different. A Lord in the biblical sense is somebody who has complete authority over every area of the life of the people that they are overseeing. And what we're gonna see this morning is that the early church, the first believers, they considered Jesus to be alive and to be the Lord over their lives. And our scripture this morning is a man named Saul, who we also know as Paul. This is the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, all those letters after the Gospels. Uh, he wrote most of those except for just a small handful. Uh, he was a missionary for Jesus Christ. He went and proclaimed the Gospel to all sorts of people all across the Greek-speaking world. We're gonna hear about him meeting Jesus and realizing that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. That's what we jump into in Acts chapter nine. This is what it says. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, 
went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we're introduced to Saul, and Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name. So think of Paul kind of like his, uh, might be similar to like a middle name, okay? Paul is kind of like an official name that he would have been given uh, at birth because he was a citizen of the Roman Empire. So his name is Saul Paul, right? Kind of. It's not exactly like a middle name, but it's pretty close. So he meets Saul, who is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of who? The Lord. Disciples of the Lord. So Saul, in his early years, he was a religious leader, and this, was, this guy was like the man. He came from privilege. His parents had the resources to send him to the best schools. He had the best teachers. He was a Pharisee. In fact, later in his letters, he says, if anybody has any reason to boast about anything, I have more. He was a zealot for the Lord. He was all about what God was doing. He knew the Old Testament, what they would have called the Bible or the scriptures. He knew that frontwards and backwards and sideways. He was the man. He went to the best schools. He was on the fast track to having power and influence and authority in the the temple life, in the religious life of the people of Israel. And in fact, in Acts, just a couple chapters earlier, he oversees the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He oversees the execution of one of the disciples of the Lord. At this point in his life, when he oversees the stoning of Stephen, he's only about 28 or 29. So he's a young guy who's on the fast track to having authority. He persecutes the church for a few years, and this happens when he's about 32 or 33, when he has this experience here. So Saul, Paul, is still breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord. He goes to the high priest and said, hey, write me a letter so I can go to all these other towns all over the place, and I'll just go to the synagogues, and I'll wrangle up all the, all the believers of Jesus, and we'll go and we'll throw them in jail in Jerusalem. Give me the authority. I'll go out there, and I'll pick them all up, and we'll bring them back, and we can throw them all in jail, and we'll squash this thing once and for all, because he did not like Jesus. He did not like the disciples of Jesus, and he wanted them to be gone, and it says here that he says, so that, he, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, a little side note here, before Christians were called Christians, they were called believers, disciples, or people of the way, the way of Jesus. So that's why we have that phrase there. Men or women that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then something happens in verse three. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? That's the polite, who are you, sir? I don't know who you are. The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So at this point in Saul's life, he had spent several years persecuting the church. He had spent several years uh, seeking out the murder of those who believed in Jesus. He believed that Jesus was dead, that he was not alive, that his disciples had stolen his body and fabricated the whole thing. He thought they were blasphemers. He thought that they were just trying to pull one over on people. He did not like them, and he thought Jesus was dead. And here he is meeting the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. So for Saul, Paul, everything that he thought was true, 
that Jesus was certainly dead, that the disciples of Jesus were certainly wrong, suddenly got turned upside down. Because now, here's Jesus, and he's alive. And remember, if you joined us on Easter a couple weeks ago, the whole point of the, the morning was saying, what if Jesus was in fact alive? What if, what if, in fact, Jesus is currently living? What if he's currently enthroned? What if he currently has authority? What does that mean for us and for our lives? And this is the reality that Saul was facing. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus exploded around him and let him know without a shadow of a doubt that he is alive and that he is currently in power and has authority. And so we know that Saul, because of this, goes blind, that he cannot see. And Jesus, of course, in his way, he has a good sense of humor. He created blindness in Saul in a physical sense because that represented the blindness that he had in a spiritual sense. Up until that point, he did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe that Jesus was alive. He was spiritually blind. He was spiritually dead. He could not see Jesus. He could not see the truth that Jesus is enthroned in power, and he could not see how that impacted his life at all. He was spiritually blind, and now here the Lord meets him and makes him physically blind to match his spiritually blindness. And he goes on, they lead him after he kind of comes out of the, the vision and after he settles down a little bit, they lead him to Damascus, to the home of probably an acquaintance or maybe, a, maybe it was like a boarding house type situation. And then we hear that Jesus goes to a man named Ananias. And Ananias is a disciple of Jesus. And he says, Ananias, go to Saul, Paul, and heal him. Lay your hands on him, pray for him, Pray for the Holy Spirit to enter him, and he will be healed. And he is somebody that I have chosen to proclaim the good news, my good news, to the world. And so then, of course, we know that Ananias does this. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. So here, Ananias goes to Saul, prays over him. Saul receives the Holy Spirit. He's now no longer spiritually blind, and then the Lord also takes away his physical blindness as well, as a representation of his spiritual blindness. So now Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit, and we know Saul, that we know that Saul, he ate some food, he got his strength, and he almost immediately goes into the synagogues, the places where they would worship, and begins to teach that Jesus is the Son of God. Almost immediately, his life has been transformed. Because everything he thought he knew about Jesus, about the way, about his disciples got flipped upside down. It changed the way that he saw the world around him. Because no longer did he see the world through strictly Jewish eyes, but now he, it was revealed to him that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all things, and now he saw the world in a different way. His eyes were opened, both physically and spiritually. 
And it's amazing the change that happens in Paul and just a few, in Saul Paul, in just a few years. Because we know from his letters, we know a lot about him and what he believed. We know where he went, what he did. We know how he made his money. But we know more than anything his profound trust in Jesus Christ. And that he goes from persecuting the church of Jesus Christ, persecuting the disciples of the way, to writing things like this in Colossians chapter 1. He writes this, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been, have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Within 10 to 15 years, Saul Paul goes from believing Jesus is dead to saying this about Jesus. Not only is Jesus alive, but he is the image of the invisible God that he holds all of creation together. In this phrase here, I love it, all things have been created through him and for him. You see, for Paul, once those spiritual blinders were lifted, once he could see the world in this new light, in this Jesus light, he knew that in fact everything, all things, all relationships, all work, even all creation itself has its fulfillment and its end in Jesus. And that led Paul on this new trajectory, that everything that he did, every conversation he had, every decision he made was pointed in the direction of Jesus. You know what we call this? We call this transformation. That's what this is. And in fact, this is the kind of transformation we here at New Life we want to see. Our mission is transformed hearts and transformed lives for a transformed community and a transformed world. In Acts chapter nine, we see a heart transformed. We see a heart go from being hard and against the work of Jesus to being broken down, filled with the Holy Spirit, and now turned in the, to the, turned in the direction of Jesus. That everything he does is pointed to Jesus, and in fact, all things have their end and fulfillment in Jesus. He was transformed. He was changed from the inside out. And we know that it changed his life too. And what we're gonna do is over the next six weeks, we're actually going to explore six big areas where Jesus offers us the same kind of transformation. But I actually wanna spend a couple more minutes exploring how Paul was transformed or what that meant for him specifically because we're gonna see these same themes crop back up week after week after week. So I don't actually have the scriptures up there for you. So I just want you to listen to these scriptures that Paul writes. In 2 Corinthians, Saul Paul writes this. He's writing about uh, this issue that he has, this suffering. We don't know if it's like a physical ailment. We don't know if it's a sin that he can't seem to kick. We don't know exactly. He calls it the thorn in his flesh. And he says this. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it, that is this suffering, away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. A nice little fun fact for you, Saul, the name Saul means to be big or mighty, and the name Paul means to be little or weak. And so I think it's telling that Saul is, his first name is Saul, but as he meets Jesus and he goes about his business, he starts going by Paul. Because Saul recognized something. He knew that the way of Jesus was a way of vulnerability, it's a way of openness and weakness, and it's a way of serving instead of receiving from others. So the first thing that we're gonna see again and again and again is in our life, Jesus calls us to surrender our lives to him because when we are weak, when we are unable to do things, he gives us his Holy Spirit and that's when he shows his grace and his strength to us. It's kind of the first mark of the life of a believer is a surrendered kind of life and Paul definitely had this. As we move on, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, uh, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain Nothing. Romans 13 reads this way. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up by this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. For Saul, Paul, the end of life was to love others, was to serve others, was to work for the benefit of others. Something really cool that I've got to experience in this time of transition is to see kind of up close and personal and get a little closer to uh, some folks on the leadership team and these individuals who are high performers, high achievers, own businesses and all these things, what I keep seeing in these people is this idea of servant leadership. And servant leadership tells you that all the influence and, and all the leadership that you have, it should be for the benefit of others. And for Paul, all life is for the benefit of others. You see, this is different from the way we normally think. We normally would think that we need to take care of ourselves, but Paul says, no, 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 love others, care for others. One last one, Galatians 5. There's, uh, this is four different verses from Galatians 5. It, it says this, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. For Paul, 
all of life was pointed in the direction of Jesus. And that means surrendering, being weak and vulnerable, and actually going the way of weakness and vulnerability and openness to others. It means serving and loving others as an end that is good. And it's finally having all things be done in freedom and for the love of other people and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, which we won't go through piece by piece yet. But for Paul, this is what everything meant. The transformation of his heart and his life meant that everything gets pointed in this direction. Going the way of weakness, going the way of vulnerability and openness, working for the good of others and being free in all things to love and to serve and having the fruit of the Spirit, the love and joy and peace and all the rest. And so over the next six weeks, we're gonna go through these six different areas of our lives. The six major areas that you and I deal with almost every day, the six major areas that you and I wish that we could have more, have more of a handle over almost every week, these are the six areas, family, finances, church, neighborhood, work, and health, and well-being, and we're gonna see through Paul's writing how he points every single one of these areas toward Jesus how he points every single one of these areas toward the way of weakness and vulnerability and openness, toward the way of love and uh, serving others and uplifting others, and in the way of freedom, being free from our sin, being free from the flesh, and having freedom to love and to serve and to be at peace and have all the other fruit of the Spirit as you go about these things. That's what we're gonna explore the next six weeks. I'm very excited because there are some of these places, some of these areas that I really could use some more Jesus. I could use some more peace and love and joy and all the rest. And so we're gonna walk through this together. But the first thing that has to happen is we have to recognize, like Paul did, that Jesus is Lord. We see back here in verse, in chapter nine, Ananias comes and he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. That needs to happen to us. Our spiritual eyes need to be restored. We need to be able to see the world around us from a Jesus perspective. We need to be able to see the world around us from the way that Jesus is, uh, with, the, with the viewpoint that Jesus is in power and has authority over all things. And today, we actually get to celebrate some people who have done just that. We get to celebrate some people who, as they have, you know, usually here at New Life, we baptize our babies, we bring them over here to the font, and we baptize them because God gives promises in baptism. And so we baptize our babies because we're preaching the gospel to them. We're telling them about how much God loves them and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they can walk in this freedom and surrender and weakness and openness and all these things. And some of us, we weren't baptized as babies, so we come to this realization later in life where we're actually able to have a, an experience like Saul, where the scales of our eyes are opened up and we see the work of Jesus in our life and we want to participate in it. We want to receive all the benefits of being part of God's family, of being renewed in Jesus Christ, of being made new, being brought to new life. And so we actually get to celebrate that by baptism. 
That's what baptism does. This is an act of transformation that God does onto the person being baptized, that they are made new, they are buried with Jesus, and they are resurrected with Jesus, which is why we're not cruel. We're not gonna put babies under the water, but if you're old enough to go under the water, why immersion is such a great way to do it? Because what a great physical representation of what God's word is doing, where we actually put you under the water like you're being buried, and then we bring you back up out of the water like you're coming back to life. So this is a great joy that we get to do this with those who are old enough to be baptized this way, uh, to experience this work of God in their lives. So with that, I actually want to invite those folks who are gonna be baptized to come up here to the chancel, and we're gonna do a little examination. So come on up, guys. Just like we practiced. Awesome. All right, you're gonna stand in the line right next to me, and you can face the congregation. Come on up, come on up. Hello, hello. Welcome. All right. So these are our folks being baptized today, all different ages. What? Contestants. <laughs> this is the game show. Yeah, that's right. Contestants, very good. So these are the folks who are gonna be baptized, different ages, and uh, we are so grateful uh, that the Lord has worked in each of these lives. And as you know, uh, we do a little bit of an examination. Usually, again, if we're baptizing a little baby, we examine the parents to make sure that they're gonna raise the child and preach the gospel to the child the way that they need to. Uh, but these folks are old enough to be examined themselves. So we're actually going to examine them. And I, as I told you guys in the class, it's really very simple. It's two questions. So I'm gonna ask you two questions. You gotta say yes to both to be baptized, all right? So the first question is, do you want to be baptized? If you do, say, I do. I do. Amen. All right, my second question is this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and is your personal savior? If you do, say, I do. I do. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And for those of us here in the congregation, uh, we don't get out of this. This is actually also our work as well because when you're baptized, it's not a personal experience, you're actually baptized into a family. You're baptized into a community of faith. And so do you, as the congregation of New Life Lutheran, who is the family that is receiving these, uh, these new individuals into the church, uh, do you commit to pray for them, to help grow them up in Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel to them, uh, to work alongside of them, and to help them in their growth? If you do say, with God's help, we will. With God's help, we will. Amen, amen. At this time, I'm gonna invite the uh, worship team to come forward, and then guys, we'll go over here and we'll get staged and ready to go, okay? That's all right. All right, remember what we're going to do? You're going to hold your nose. There you go. Yeah. Can I have you squat down a little bit for me? The ending once was crowned 
is crowned with glory Savior now to watch Now at his shines for all to see your name your name is victory all praise will rise to Christ our now gives way to him who is our peace his final breath upon the cross is now alive in me your name your name is of defeat the resurrected king is resurrecting me in your name I come alive to declare your victory the resurrected king is resurrecting me by your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat the resurrected resurrecting me in your name I come alive to declare your victory the resurrected king is resurrecting me the tomb was so borrowed for three days his body there would not remain our God has robbed the
so grateful that you have made all things new, and Lord, that includes us. So I pray, Lord, for these individuals who have been baptized, that you would um, welcome them, Lord, into your kingdom, that they would know you and love you, that they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. They would grow in you more and more, day by day. Lord, we thank you for your grace for us, that you have transformed us, that you have made us new, and you've offered us new life. And I ask you, Lord, that you would continue to guide us. Continue to give us your Holy Spirit. Help us walk the path of weakness and transparency and openness. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, work in all things toward the good of others and love. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us free, free to love you and to serve you and to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's give a round of applause for all of our folks who got baptized.